What happens if you have a data breach? You know what happens? It's over. So the best thing for you to do is to secure your data the best way possible. And to do that, you need to know what we're gonna share with you on this edition of The Inside BS Show. Hey now, I'm Dave Lorenzo, I'm the godfather of growth, and I'm here with my partner, Nikki G. Nicola, how are you this afternoon? Hi Dave, I am doing great, how are you? I'm fantastic, thank you. So Nicola, you talk to a lot of clients, and a lot of clients who have data in their business, and I know this keeps them up at night. What happens if somebody has a data breach and they didn't do what they were supposed to do? What are the legal implications of that? Sure, so the legal risks can be significant when you have a data breach. So I'm setting aside right now for purposes of this discussion all the business risks, because certainly there are costs to your business to correct it. There are reputational concerns you need to be thinking about when it happens. But aside from all of that, you also may have a massive liability exposure that you need to be thinking about and thinking about immediately. Oftentimes what we see when there is a massive data breach is a lawsuit that follows it in the civil space. And oftentimes it's a class action. So put simply, a class action is a lawsuit brought by one or more individuals as plaintiffs on behalf of a class or a group of similarly situated individuals who share a similar harm that occurred to them as a result of the defendant's conduct. So in these particular instances, what we will see is data was exposed for a massive group of consumers, and so a lawsuit is brought on their behalf to recover those monies for what they were damaged. The lawsuit settlements that we have seen come out of some of these massive data breaches are immense. We're talking anywhere from $150 million in settlement monies to upwards of $700 million. You know, some of the examples we've seen are with, with Uber, with T-Mobile, and with Equifax. So there are significant liability risks associated with that from a civil standpoint that you absolutely need to be considering along with you know everything else that's going on with the business at the time. So Nicola, you are so impressive with your legal definitions. It's, it's, almost, it's almost as if you're reading it out of a legal textbook. One of my clients who uh, is in the managed service space said to me one time that, you know, a data breach is kind of like drunk driving these days. It's like a rite of passage. Almost everybody you know has had that happen to them at some point. And I said, actually, no. You know what a data breach is like? It's like if you're a school bus driver and you're drunk driving and you drive the school bus off the edge of a bridge and all the children are killed. That's what a data breach is like because it, it, it has a massive impact not only on you legally, it has an impact on you financially, it has an impact on you reputationally from the standpoint of the fact that if you have competitors who have not had a breach, everyone's gonna flee to a competitor immediately because they're never going to trust you with their data or their money ever again. So I don't wanna spend the rest of this show talking about how horrible it is to have a data breach, but I do want to sufficiently scare the crap out of people who are not taking the proper precautions to secure their data. And we can spend a couple of minutes at the end of the show talking about the proper way to handle a breach if you've had it. I mean, you gotta engage an attorney first and then have the attorney hire all the experts. We can talk about all that at the end of the show. I'd much rather focus on what we can do upfront to make sure that everything is secure. And to do that, we have the perfect person as a guest on the show today. So folks, if you're listening, if you're watching, we are gonna introduce you to 
Kathy Myron. We call her Cyber Kathy. She's the queen of the cloud. She owns a company called eSilo, and they specialize in helping people just like you prevent all that nasty crap we just talked about from happening. But the depth of her knowledge is so much greater than that. I can't wait for you to meet her. Kathy, welcome to the show. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me, Dave and Nicola. Oh, it's so great to have you here. So, Kathy, let's start off. Why don't you Why don't you give the folks your background? Because you know, when I when I listen to a podcast, the first thing I think of is, all right, so I know who Dave and Nicola are. Now they're putting somebody in front of me, and they say she's sharp, but we can't do you justice as well as you can. So, talk about your background. Talk about how you got to the place where you are today as an entrepreneur. But talk about where you were before that, because you, like me, had a background in corporate America. So explain to the folks where you came from. Sure, Dave. So before I was the CEO of eSilo, and we're a data backup and cybersecurity company, as you can imagine, I spent 15 years at a Fortune 10 multinational organization. Um, so I was at a company called GE. You might have heard of them. They make aircraft engines, uh, healthcare machines. We ran or recycled $12 billion of commercial paper every single day. Um, we had a lot of different businesses, and I spent uh, nine of my years at GE in the corporate audit function. Um, so really looking at these different standalone businesses and evaluating their cybersecurity health, their business resiliency, their IT systems, and the quality of the data that came out of those systems and was used for everything from financial reporting to handling of, of client information and, and so on and so forth. Um, so that's really where I came from and where I learned that when you think about technology and cybersecurity specifically, you might be governed or regulated by a number of different three-letter agencies. And depending on what country you're, you're talking about, there's a whole bunch of different regulations. But if you strip all of that back, what makes good technology, a good high-functioning technology system or organization is really the same. The requirements are by and large the same. And that is, are you protecting information in the way that it's accessed? Are you protecting, protecting the network that all of those systems run on? Are you protecting the systems that are housing all of that information and how you interact with third parties and so on and so forth? So um, that's really where my background comes from. Uh, after I spent nine years in audit, I actually moved on to a CTO role. So I was one of the chief technology officers up at GE headquarters. Um, and at the time, my team was res responsible for all of the productivity tools, mobile and collaboration tools for a global 350,000 uh, person workforce. So again, you think about the variety of technology and the kind of problems that organizations like that have staying safe and staying compliant. Um, I take that knowledge and I bring that to my small and mid-sized clients and help them understand and distill down. These are the most essential things that you need to be putting in place to protect yourself, to protect your employees, to protect your clients. Um, and we help do that in a way where they're able to leverage tools that maybe they've never heard of before or never been exposed to um, and also implement the right procedures that are going to keep them out of trouble in the long term. So how how did you get into tech in the first place? Were you like a little baby crawling around on the living room floor with your, you know, your parents TRS-80 Radio Shack computer and like tooling around with it and that's how you got into tech? How did, how did you become uh, somebody who was interested in technology? No, but that's what you're describing as my son <laughs> growing up with, you know, all the devices. Um, I always was a really avid user of technology. So I was always the first to go out and buy the MP3 player when it came out or the tiny pocket camera. Um, so I loved using technology and I was always excited by the power that it could bring. 
Um, but then it wasn't until I went to college, I studied um, finance, information systems, and operations, partly because I frankly didn't know what I wanted to do, and partly because I knew that I wanted to be in business, whatever that meant, and I knew that technology and numbers were going to be a huge part of it. So that's really how I got my start. Um, and I was fortunate that when I was in college, they were doing recruiting for a bunch of different leadership programs. And so I was lucky enough to get into GE's uh, information management leadership program. And that just put me on the track for, for the rest of my career, um, gave me a lot of opportunity to see different areas within technology. So I understood what it meant to be on the infrastructure side versus creating applications versus um, sitting with a business owner and under, understanding their problems and translating that into new technology that we could create and deliver for them. And that's really what got me started. Hey, Nikki G, did you know you can also get our show as an audio podcast? Of course I know you can get the show as an audio podcast. I'm on it. But does our audience? I don't know. So those of you who are watching on YouTube, you can find us wherever you get your podcasts. Just search up the Inside BS Show with The Godfather and Nikki G, and you'll find us right there. Click the follow button so that you never miss a show. Now, there's a couple of reasons why you're going to want to do that. Nikki G, tell them what the first reason is. You get to ask us questions. That is exclusive to our podcast listeners. Yeah, we only answer listener questions on the audio version of the podcast. We don't do it on video. So if you want to hear what everyone's thinking, or if you want to ask us a question, you got to download the audio podcast. The second reason, and my favorite reason, is because you can take us with you. You can have a little Nikki G in your pocket while you're working out in the gym, washing the dishes, or walking the dog. I love me some Nikki G in my pocket when I'm walking the dogs. I don't know about you, Nicola, but that's one of my favorite things to do. Absolutely. Take us with you. After you watch this episode here on YouTube, go to wherever you get your podcast. Click the follow button so we can go with you on your journey and you can ask us questions. We will see you or more like hear you there. Okay, so when you're, when you're at GE and you're, let's say you're in your first or your second year at GE and things are going great and you're, and you're doing well because, you know, GE pays, you know, they pay their employees well. Are, do you have one eye on always doing your own thing and being an entrepreneur or was it something that was foisted upon you? Never. It happened by accident. I could have just as easily stayed for 40 years and, and retired. Um, as you said, they, they treat you too well to make you want to leave. Um, but I had other factors in my life that, that kind of happened. I had met my husband at work, so that was fantastic. But also that meant that we brought it home every day. You know, we would always talk about mm. the same people. Our teams worked together, um, which I think made our teams uncomfortable. <laughs> but, <laughs> but anyways, he had an amazing opportunity to come down here to Florida. Um, so he, he left the company, came down here. Um, I stayed remote for another year. Um, but I realized, and this was back in 2016, that I spent all of my days in my home office on a video camera talking to people in other parts of the world. Now we all do that, right, post COVID. Uh, but at the time, I just didn't feel like I was creating the connections here where we were gonna live and, and put down roots. Um, so that was really the beginning of, of me starting to look around and, and ultimately shift to be more entrepreneurial because where I live, I'm about two hours north of Miami, there weren't a whole lot of GEs in this neck of the woods. Um, and having a young family and we had just had my daughter and we were about to have my son, I knew that being in the car four hours a day wasn't going to cut it. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So you decide that you're going to exit GE and you're going to become an entrepreneur. What was your what was your process like? Because 
you know, I know you now for a year and you're, you seem like a very thoughtful, logical person. So I'm assuming that you had some sort of a plan. What was your plan? Of course plan? I had a plan. <laughs> I don't know if anyone uh, knows this, but Harvard Business School uh, would teach a course and they also put out a book about how to buy a business. And I stumbled upon that while I was still at GE and it kind of put on the light bulb. And I said, well, I never considered myself entrepreneurial. I don't think I have the, the stomach of what it takes to start something fresh, um, but I can absolutely go and buy something and make it better. And I had felt like my time at GE was very much a real world MBA. And so, you know, all the management training and leadership skills, I said, I can go find something that I can be really passionate about and put my own mark in it. And hopefully, you know, I'm gonna find something that's already successful and I can just make it better. Um, so I went out, I devoured the book, I hired a business broker and I went shopping. And I didn't know that there was a business MLS just like there is for home sales. But so, you know, you can't, you sign a couple NDAs and you start looking at all these businesses. And, and I wanted to think differently and, and think more broadly than I had before. So I entertained a lot of different business models and companies. I wasn't dead set on tech. And to be honest, most of the technology businesses for sale, either I couldn't, you know, buy on my own or they were websites and, and I wanted a real, a real business that had a real impact. Um, but ultimately I got very lucky in the sense that eSilo's founders were looking to exit. They had built a very successful enterprise over the course of 15, 16 years. Um, but the founders were a bit tired of, of the same thing. At the time we were exclusively an offsite backup company um, and we didn't have any of the consulting work or any of the real cyber focus. And so I saw that as a chance for me to pick up a key component of a good cyber hygiene plan, right, is, is offsite backups and, and disaster recovery. And what do you do when something bad happens and really add to it all of my consulting experience. So that's ultimately how I found eSilo and, and acquired the company back in 2018. Gosh, I, I just want to hear some more about this journey. So you you purchased eSilo and tell us, you know, what were the immediate challenges? So you went right from working with GE, being in the corporate world, being thrust into entrepreneurship voluntarily, of course. But what were some of those early challenges that you faced in taking that company and and shifting it to expand what they were offering to the market? Some of the best I got advice I got in the very beginning was from my broker. And he said, don't break what you just bought. So I had all of these ideas of the things that I wanted to do, but I also knew that it was really important to stop and listen, listen to the team, listen to the customers, right? Interview our partners and understand what was working well and what wasn't. And I had to train myself to be really patient, which is not a natural uh, trait for me. Um, so that was a little bit challenging. And the other thing I think is it was extremely humbling because coming from a large enterprise, right? I had a level of, of confidence over, oh, this will be so easy. And as all of us know, now that we're here in the real world, entrepreneurship, owning a business, running a business is not easy. There are so many things that you have to do or find the right person to do or figure out how to do, you know, learn it. Uh, and whereas when you come from corporate, there's a team and there's a part, a department or a person that you can always call on, on to do those things. So I think I'm a person who loves to learn. I'm constantly trying to better myself and better my skills. So I think that was a good match, but it also just took me a long time to learn how to do things that I'd never done before. Um, I did a lot of influencing within corporate. You know, we called that sort of selling, um, getting other people to do things, but I never had to get someone to open up their wallet. And that for me was definitely a big, a big change. And so just one example of, of many um, as I first got started. Sure. What would you say helped you? 
I mean, you've identified kind of you're struggling with these challenges and you're you're finding your way through it. But what, is there something that really stands out to you that really helped you get through that difficult time period? So I made my own little board of advisors, right? So people that I knew and trusted and had expertise in the domains where I was weak. Um, so that certainly helped. I had listened to more business podcasts and, and started reading business books. I never did any of that in corporate. I was, you know, heads down. This is all I need to do. And I, I realized there's a whole world out there of consultants and coaches and people who have helped hundreds, if not thousands of people that were in my shoes get over some of those initial humps. Um, so realizing that and finally kind of raising my hand and asking for help and hiring some, some good people to help me um, was really key. So yeah, let, let me let me ask Kath real quick. How did you uh, how did you decide which advice to take and which advice to not take? Because there's there's so much out there, and there are so many people who are giving out so much advice that's bad advice. How did you how did you how did, what was your process to sort through it? I will admit, at the time, I don't think I had much of a process. You know that, that that's the first thing I can say. Um, but I've always had this philosophy, and I used to tell this to the folks that I would mentor. You go ask three people the same question, they're all going to give you a different answer from their unique perspective. And your job is to triangulate between those responses, what resonates and feels true for you. And it, it, that's essentially, I guess, the process, even though I wouldn't have consciously realized that that's what I was doing at the time. So the stuff that I would, you know, someone would give me a piece of advice on messaging. Oh, you need to be more emotive in your messaging. I'm a very rational, matter of fact, analytical person. And they're like, you sell based on emotions. Like, well, I know how to do that. All right, let me go read some books. Let me go talk to some people. Let me hire her to write stuff for me so that I can learn how to do it. So those are things where, you know, I think almost instantly sometimes you realize, yeah, that that makes sense. Let me go and try that. Um, whereas sometimes I, I got advice from folks and a lot of times one of the filters I apply is, well, do I want to be them? Do I look up to them for... Um, something that they've accomplished or, or achieved in their personal or professional life. Um, and I really try to make sure that I'm, I'm taking advice from people I consider to be role models and who have a lot to offer. Because um, you get a lot of free advice sometimes, but it's not always good, as you said. Well, yeah, Nicola can tell you about unsolicited advice. What's the, what's the, uh, what's the mantra we have about unsolicited advice, Nicola? The advice is for you, not the person on the receiving end of it. Yeah, 100%, 100%. Go ahead, Nicola, you got the next question. Sure, so let me back up a moment. When you, you step into this role, did you already decide from the outset, these are the key objectives that I really like to achieve? And if you did, how and if did that, how and did that change from the time you got through all the self-education and you're really getting your footing moving forward? You know, I wish I could say that I was much more strategic and intentional when I started, but the reality is, is I didn't know what I didn't know. So part of this was me jumping in feet first and figuring it out. Um, had you asked me in 2018 if I ever thought growing a consulting sort of arm of our service would be a big priority, I probably wouldn't have said so, or if I did, it would have been you know, much further on. So I, I think things kind of evolved differently. I, I will tell you that one of the first things that I had intended to do was um, a lot of work around analytics. So in organizations, and AI is, is becoming so popular at this point, or so mainstream, um, I should say. But uh, I was thinking, if we've got data for 300 different companies you know, about their internal operations, wouldn't there be some way to anonymize that and derive analytics from it so that we could show you, here's how your 
operations or transactions compare to two dozen other peers in your same industry all across the country. And then, of course, you know, you quickly realize that um, some things that sound good are not very easy to practically implement in a safe and secure and, and, and in a way that, you know, aligns with with your core values. And so I ultimately abandoned that idea and we moved on to different things. But I'll tell you that my goal for the business wasn't very um, specific in terms of products or services or, or whatever. It was, I just want to help small businesses. Like, I just want to help people who don't have access to the information and the resources that I had when I was in corporate. And I'll, I'll give you a perfect example. When you're in a Fortune 10, you know, the big vendors, everybody comes to you. Microsoft would come to me. Salesforce would come to me. I went and had lunch with Steve Ballmer when he was the CEO of Microsoft. I mean, you never get an invitation like that, you know, except for when, you, when you're in those large enterprises. Small and mid-sized organizations are trying to get support when something's broken and they can't even get to someone in this country or, you know, you open a ticket and it gets routed to 15 different places. And then five days later, someone gets back to you. And I said, that's horrible. And I wanted my clients to feel that white glove concierge level of service, that level of we actually care about how your business is doing. Um, and so that's really where I, I was focused on is making an impact and doing the things that I knew I was really good at. Um, but for a community that really needed it, and frankly, would be a lot more appreciative than, you know, some of the, the larger corporations where you're just a cog in the wheel. Give us the kind of overview of your like eSilo as a company and, you know, your team, you're you're virtual. I see you're you're working from an office in your home. Right. Uh, those of you who are listening, Kathy has a very nice office in her home and I've I've been in there virtually many times. So is is all of your team virtual and how many, you know, how many folks do you have? And, you know, do you do you have separate consulting people from the, you know, the the product or service offerings that you have? Explain how it works. Yeah, sure. So we're 100 percent remote. Um, most of the team is in South Florida, although we have somebody who's up in New Jersey. And in three days, I have a team member who's moving from Miami to the Czech Republic. So we truly embody being able to work uh, and live anywhere. And I think that's a huge, that's a huge attraction to, to what we do. Um, the team itself is, we're fairly small. So we're about five people core to the, to the organization. Most of my team is very technical. So they run the day-to-day -day of the backup service. They're handling client issues. Um, they're, they're doing all of that. Most of the client facing components are going to be me. So you think about like high technologists, they're, they're very, very introverted and they're much happier with their numbers and their, their screens than they are interacting with uh, the clients every day. So I love to take that on. I love to be in that role of the problem solver. Um, I've always sort of been in that translation of what are you trying to accomplish in terms of business? What's the problem? How do we make things better with technology? And then directing the team behind the scenes to be able to do that. Um, so that's essentially how we work. Um, when it comes to cybersecurity assessments, where we might be dealing with regulations in different areas um, or with different jurisdictions, I do have a broad network of resources that I can also call upon if we need somebody who's a specialist in that field and that's all they do all day long. Um, but our core team is, is really the, the five of us. Is there something that triggered that passion for working with small and mid-sized businesses aside from, you know, kind of developing some of that while at GE? Is there something further back in your background that made you want to do that? I guess I'll say that the closest um, peak I had into entrepreneurship was my mother was in real estate and my father was an electrical engineer. 
um, but on a contract basis. So he was very much sort of running his own business, um, but on his own. So he would, you know, work for, for different uh, companies as projects would, would arise. And I saw how hard they worked for what they were able to provide me and my family. And being a first-generation American, so my parents were both from Hong Kong. They came over to the U.S. for school for the idyllic, you know, American dream. Um, I wanted to, I guess, pay thanks to that and and really respect everything that I had watched them accomplish. I mean, when you were in uh, college and they would ask you, you know, to write the essay of like who's your hero, I literally re- would write about my dad. And when he came to the U.S., he didn't speak a whole lot of English, right? You know, he got very basic education. He put himself through school in three years. He worked. Um, he also has polio. So ever since he was one, he, he's walked with a limp. And um, I think people some, will sometimes discount you for, for things like that. And I just watched him ha- like build the most resilient spirit. And the mo- he has the most can-do attitude, but he does it in a very kind way where he takes care of other people. He's never, you know, up for one-upping or, you know, any of that type of BS. Um, and so, you know, when I think about the average small business owner, like they're building a legacy for their family. They're working their butts off to provide for their children and their grandchildren. And a lot of them are also immigrants. And so they don't have um, always the best backgrounds or, you know, come from, from all of these opportunities and, and means, but they're able to make an incredibly amazing uh, life for themselves, but also impact on their community. And so it, it's playing a, a very small part in helping those businesses thrive because, you know, whatever, 85% of, of businesses in America are you know, considered small. I think that's a huge part of, of what we do. Kathy, when you when you were growing up, how much uh, how much influence did your parents' journey to the U.S. have on uh, on you? And what you know, what was that influence? You know, you said your dad was your hero. Was it was it the work ethic? Was it like I mean, coming here with nothing? That is that's almost like the entrepreneurial journey. Only you know, high stakes for the whole family. Did that have an impact on you? And did you, were you able to like, did you reflect on that before you left GE to go out on your own? It wasn't incredibly conscious, but it, it's always been a, a component of my personality and something that I, that I valued. Um, what I got from my parents was absolutely work ethic. It was, it was also courage to do something unknown um, and to be, to put yourself in, in unfamiliar situations, if you think that there's tremendous upside, you know, on, on the other side of it, I think about what their parents must've felt sticking their kid on a plane. Um, and then, you know, if I use my dad as an example, they, his whole family scraped up enough money to send him here. My grandfather was a fisherman, so they didn't really have a lot. There were seven kids. Um, he's the only one that they sent to America and he didn't have enough money for to get back home for something like 10 years. So when his mother passed away, he didn't have enough money to come back for the funeral. And so, but I, I watched him work hard and save and create something. Um, and so that level of work ethic definitely kind of permeates into my personality. Um, and also just for a little while, I had a chip on my shoulder when I was younger. And I, I don't know if it's 
because I'm Asian, because I'm a woman, because I'm smaller, I always look young. So I would find that people would often underestimate me. So I wanted to show that I was just as good as, if not better than the other men in the room or you know the other students in the classroom or whatever it is. And it took a while for that fire to kind of wake up inside. Like, yeah, I didn't have that through school. I was kind of like, eh, whatever school. But um, as I got into the working world, I realized that that was going to be something that set me apart. And if I didn't stand up and speak up and, and have my voice be heard, I was going to regret that later. Um, and it was probably one of, one of the best things that I did in, in a culture and in a company where that was really rewarded and diversity was valued. And so I was very fortunate to be in, in the GE ecosystem because I think I, I got a lot of opportunities early in my career when I was younger that in most other organizations, you wouldn't have a shot at a job like that until you were 40, 50 even sometimes. So that was that was pretty amazing. Yeah, I really want to pick up on this. So, and, and we share this, Kathy, you know, I remember growing up and being a woman who wanted to be in business and there weren't many. And I, you always feel like you kind of have to overcompensate for, you have, to, you have to try harder, you have to be smarter, you have to be more driven to be able to break through, you know, a lot of the barriers that existed. And I really want to ask you because tech is such a male dominated field. I mean, it's something like less than 30% of women are in technology. The, amount, the, the percentage of women who are leaders in technology are even less than that. So I want to hear just first of all, your initial impression when you hear that, if it's something that you consciously think about, um, or if you did, you know, as you were coming up through the ranks and owning your own company. Yeah, it's definitely in the back of my mind. Um, it's why a lot of the nonprofit work and volunteerism that I do within the technology space is focused on girls in STEM and women in technology, women leaders, because um, there's never enough of us. And I think, you know, the generation needs to turn around and, and pull up those that are coming behind them. And I was lucky enough to have a lot of women role models, women mentors who helped me kind of make that transition. So so that's definitely huge. Um, but I will say that in the last couple of years, I think it's gotten better. You know, more women in tech and, and women in cyber. We're still, you know, one out of maybe every seven or eight in a room. Um, but it, But it is getting better. Um, I just think that when you don't have enough women in the boardroom, period, <laughs> it's really hard to get, you know, women in, in leadership in, in other places. So the more that we can be visible, and I think it's it's podcasts like yours, it's um, speaking events, it's conferences. And I'm, I'm looking forward to in September, I'm going to be moderating a panel on cybersecurity and disaster recovery at the Disaster Recovery Journals Conference in Phoenix. And I was really um, vocal about the panel and wanting to make sure that we had diversity on the panel and really happy that it's an even 50-50 split men and women. And so like, those are the types of things where I think if we push for that more, um, the, the women leaders in the field get, get recognized and aren't visible. Yeah, absolutely. Is there something that for you, you know, when you think about this and, and helping to advance more women into technology, is there something else that stands out to me? Obviously, you're giving back, you're, you're, you're active in these programs where they're focused on STEM. And I think that's really been significant in the last few years in showcasing, you know, opportunities for careers in technology and those other areas to women, especially and, and other students. Is there something else that, you know, from your standpoint would help advance careers in technology? That, or, or other ways a company, companies rather can think about, you know, helping to promote careers in technology, especially for women. Yeah, I, I think when it comes to companies promoting, I would say make sure that there's equal opportunity for training. Um, a lot of times in a group setting, our unconscious bias kind of creeps in and I even find it with myself where, 
you know, you'll see a group of professionals and then there's a woman in the room and you, and sometimes you might assume that the woman is um, the marketing person or the HR person or the intern, you know, there to get everybody coffee as opposed to the technologist or the cybersecurity person. Um, and so I, I think, you know, opportunities for one catching, catching that, that unconscious bias and kind of educating people on it, but then um, sending women to training, giving them opportunity to be the um, tech super user of the systems that, that you have, or um, to be the liaison with the um, managed IT partner that does, you know, your, your firm's technology. I think those all help through exposure, right, to get them into and, and interested in technology. That's really how I fell into it. Um, I thought I was going to be in finance. I did an internship at Morgan Stanley and they happened to just, you know, luck of the draw. I got assigned to a team that was automating a lot of business processes. And I was like, whoa, this is really cool. Like, you know, we could do the spreadsheet thing and, and, and all of that. But the power of technology in an enterprise like this, that's what I want to go do. Um, and so that kind of changed the course of, of where I was looking in terms of career prospects after I graduated. So I think it's that kind of exposure that just helps women see that there's other opportunities. And hopefully there's another woman on the other side of the table who um, is already in the field and can kind of show them the ropes. Because I think, you know, there's also comfort in in a community of, of your peers. Um, and I'll say the same thing for my financial advisor. You know, he's a man, but he has a woman on his team. I will call the woman 10 times more than I will call the man just because I feel more comfortable with her. And that's just, you know, that's the way that it is. So, Kathy, let's um, let's dig into eSilo now. So give us your uh, give us your business model. OK, tell us what because we have a lot of hardcore business folks who listen to the show. So give us what is the eSilo business model? How does how does a brand new client come to eSilo and what's the what's kind of the, the client path along the client lifetime journey? Sure. So majority of our new clients come to us through cybersecurity assessment. Um, and that's usually because they either just had a breach um, or maybe they had a close call, right? So we almost got hit, but then the bank was able to, you know, recollect some of the funds that we had wired to the wrong person or um, something else. Or sometimes it's just that they are either in a regulated industry, so there's an annual requirement for, for a self-assessment or, or an external third-party assessment. Um, or in the case of John, who's a partner at a, a management consulting firm, and they've been a client of ours for a couple of years now, they were courting much bigger clients. They were courting Fortune 500 companies, and those companies have a lot more strict supplier security reviews than you know, your average um, you know, mid-sized customer. And they knew that they needed to up their game in order to, to pass those reviews and, and land those deals. So um, usually they'll come to us through, through the course of an assessment. Um, we'll determine with them what's the standard we should be assessing them against. So what are the applicable regulations? Um, or if there isn't you know, a direct regulation, we'll often do a NIST uh, cybersecurity framework assessment, NIST CSF, um, National Institute of Standards and Technology. And that's kind of the gold standard for, for our industry. Um, over the course of several weeks, we'll get really deep into their business. We'll interview a bunch of folks on their team. Um, and at the end of it, they get a very detailed report from us that says, here are the places where you meet those expectations, here's where you're doing well, and here's all the places where maybe you're not. And here's a roadmap for the next three months, six months, 12 months of the things that you need to do in priority order to close those gaps and reduce your risk of a, of a cyber attack or, or a data breach. And I think a lot of folks, when they think about cybersecurity, they think about tools, right? Oh, you know, I just go buy this tool and I install it and everything's fine. 
And I think the marketing for those companies that make those tools, um, they don't do anybody any favors because they oversimplify the problem. They oversimplify the solution. Just buy this one thing. When in reality, just like many other things, cyber is a people, process, and tools conversation. Um, and we pride ourselves in, in not shying away from the conversation around people and process. Um, it's very easy to buy and resell tools. We will do that in some cases, but to be honest, that is not core to our business model at all. It is really partnering with the, our clients from a strategic point of view. How are you setting your technology budget? Are you investing enough in cybersecurity compared to your peers? Here's what the benchmark is. Um, here's how you should be thinking about investments in hardware and software and cloud services and, and, and. Um, and in a lot of cases, they're stuck with some older technology that's you know been around for many, many years. Maybe it used to meet their needs, but it doesn't any longer, but they don't know how to get into something better. They don't know how to modernize. So no matter what it is that their, their problem is, we'll advise them on how to solve that through better technology. Some of that's gonna be a cyber conversation, but some of it's just gonna be, let's introduce you to partners who develop custom software, or let's introduce you to platforms that out of the box do what you're looking for. And maybe it's an opportunity for you to move and, and save some money and, and save some hassle in the process. So that's kind of how they get in. Um, once they are in, as part of that action plan, we're usually sitting down and helping them write information security policies, business continuity policies, incident response plans, um, helping them put in place the right capabilities so that if and when an attack does happen, they know how to properly respond. And that's where the backup side of our business comes in. So as I mentioned, when I bought eSilo, we were exclusively offsite backup. Um, so for a law firm or an accounting firm or a medical practice, we would be their offsite backup storage. So if they had an issue, whether that was a tornado or a hurricane or a cyber attack, they would call us and we would be the ones to help restore their data, um, working in concert with their IT people. We still do that, um, but we don't often lead with that as the as you know the first part of the conversation. That's a component in our toolkit for how we help them be prepared for those types of events. So after, or as a part of you know, that, that action plan, we'll often work with them on an ongoing basis as their fractional CIO. So chief information officer, that's your C-suite level person who is overseeing your technology, um, not doing the, the hands-on work, but overseeing your vendor or your team that's doing it um, and providing that, that strategic level guidance to the board and, and the management on what needs to be happening. So that's kind of the third leg of our stool as far as the things that, that we do for our clients. That's great. If somebody's buying a company, would you do a technology assessment like upfront as a, as a way to kind of assess the vulnerabilities that may be there? So if you're buying a company and what a lot of what you're buying is the database of their clients and the goodwill, is there a way that, you know, they could connect with you to look over what they have and how and get an estimate for how much it would it would cost to shore up whatever data they may have? Yeah. So it, it, I'm glad you asked that because I think it's something that gets overlooked in M&A transactions is the potential cybersecurity risk um, of what you're acquiring. Um, and we've seen that happen time and time again. So somebody gets acquired and then they discover that 
you know, six months before the acquisition, there was a leak, but nobody knew it until, you know, post-close. So that's absolutely something that, that people can come and, and ask us to do an assessment. So they get an idea of how well was the company operating? How buttoned up are their systems? And I think that'll give you a really good indication of the rest of their operations too. It's a good leading indicator. Um, the one thing I will say that we're not specialists at, because I like to be very transparent about what we're good at and what we're not, is valuing the technology. So if it's a company that has its own proprietary technology, we're not experts in that valuation, but we also work with and have a lot of companies that we could refer them to for that component of it. Um, but really what we focus on is the technology that supports their internal operations and how they run their day-to-day. -day. So how early should a company come to you if they do want you to take a look at that in an M&A transaction? As early as they've got a potential target in mind. Um, and the reason I say that is because my business experience, there's a whole bunch of other things besides just, you know, looking at the technology that I'm going to ask them questions about, like third parties and suppliers, you know, how are they thinking about, how are they managing that risk? One of the big things that we talk about a lot with the, the companies that we work with is supplier related risk. Almost, uh, I don't, I don't want to quote the wrong number. So I'm going to say a significant number of breaches are as a result of third parties that are compromised, right? You look at Target, you know, that was a huge, very popular breach um, many years ago, um, but they were compromised through their HVAC provider. Um, so you think about how how large companies are very well protected and very well resourced, but their suppliers tend to be smaller and tend to not be. Those are the ones that are a target. So. A lot of times we'll have people say, oh, but, you know, I'm not big enough to, to be a target of a, of a cyber attack. I have no valuable data. Nobody's, you know, we're not on anybody's radar. And it's not that you specifically are targeted. It's who your clients are. And frankly, sometimes it's just that no one's targeted. It's just easy pickings. You know, if you leave your, your car unlocked in the mall parking lot, someone one day will eventually pull the handle and take everything that's inside. So, you know, sometimes it's also just a matter of opportunity um, that you have to be aware of. I tell the story all the time, Kathy, of how when I switched to uh, a, a business fiber internet connection, I I went from a from a you know an, a, a variable IP to a static IP, and they didn't tell me that they were moving me to a static IP, and they didn't tell me the risk of having an IP that didn't change all the time. You know, every time we every time we logged in, so my phone vendor happened to say to me, hey, listen, now that you're on fiber, you have a static IP, so you absolutely need a firewall. And I ordered one, and it took two days for the firewall to get there. During that two-day period, I woke up one morning, the, the second day that I had this, turn on my computer, there was a text file on the desktop. And the text file, when I opened it, had like a digitally driven, uh, uh, drawn smiley face with like zeros and ones. And it said, your data is exposed. You need a firewall. You're lucky you have nothing of value or it would be mine. <laughs> and I freaked out. I unplugged everything, turned everything off. And I got in the car and drove and bought the firewall and installed it like that day. <laughs> so, I mean, you think it can't happen to you. I'm a guy operating a business out of my house with a dozen contractors that work for me. I got nothing of value, yet with, with, within like 24 hours of having a static IP, somebody found my vulnerable system and was in it. Yeah. Incredible. Absolutely incredible. 
So it's it's just it's amazing to me. Explain for those for the people who don't know, right? There's an entrepreneur here who is, you know, he he owns a railroad in Pennsylvania. I know. We actually have one guy who listens to the show who actually owns a railroad in Pennsylvania. I met him through Vistage. So he may not know what, you know, what uh, you know, backing up stuff to the cloud means, and he may not know how to select the right vendor to do that. So what is the difference for that guy from hiring you for hiring you to back up all his data to the cloud versus dragging and dropping a file into Dropbox? Yeah. So um, there's a whole bunch of differences. The first thing I'll say is if you're running a real business, you need a real business backup solution. You don't want to use a consumer tool to do it. Um, you don't want to use a Dropbox or OneDrive or Google Drive, right? Um, those are actually cloud sync tools. They're not cloud backup tools. It's a common mis misperception. Um, when you think about it like this, if your computer gets compromised, you click on a bad link that came through an email of somebody that looked familiar, and all of a sudden your computer is infected with a virus. Um, and your files all get corrupted. So they get jumbled up, they're all there, but you try to open them, you can't actually make heads or tails of it, you can't see it, you can't use any of the data. Um, if you're using Dropbox Sync or OneDrive Sync, then the copy of that file that lives in your cloud that you think is your backup is now also corrupted too, right? So the, the, the changes are kind of indiscriminate. If you delete a file from your computer, then the copy in the cloud can be deleted also. Um, so what we always tell folks is that you don't want a constant synchronization of your data. A real backup is going to be as of a point in time where, say, 8 o'clock every night, you're going to take a backup of your files. If something happens after that backup at 8 o'clock, you can roll back everything on your system back to a single point in time. So there's consistency there. Um, the other thing is that a tool like Dropbox won't allow you to control when new versions get made and how many versions get saved, right? You buy a plan, the plan includes however many versions. They often don't tell you because they wanna be able to change that behind the scenes. It's not part of what you pay for um, and you don't get to control that version history. Whereas again, if you have business grade backup, you can decide that the backup happens once a night at eight o'clock, it happens every six hours, it happens every two hours, right? So you control frequency and you also control retention. I need that backup to be saved for 30 days, 60 days, seven years because of my regulatory requirements. And so you now have a lot more control. Um, so that's really the one of the first you know things. The second thing is you wanna make sure your backups are encrypted because if something ever happens to that provider, if something ever happens to that storage, you wanna make sure that even if it get, falls into the wrong hands, nobody can actually view the files and take them and use them. And if you were to have a, a, a leak of private information, if it's encrypted, that's going to help you quite a bit as far as you know your breach res responsibilities and, and what the implications might be. And then the other thing is that you want those backups to be completely automatic. There's a lot of organizations I talk to where you know the backup is so-and-so's job. When so-and-so gets sick or is on vacation or just gets really busy and forgets, your backups don't happen. And too often we find companies that think they have a set of backups and a set of routines, but nobody's checking on them. So you don't realize that, oh, well, that was a task of somebody that we fired six months ago. And so they haven't been happening. And then they go to restore from a cyber attack or a ransomware incident. And lo and behold, there are no backups or the backups that they have are two months old because no one's been watching the store. 
Um, so when you have a, a, a business grade backup service and business backup software, that's happening for you automatically. It's run by outside people. So that's like my team, that's all they do. Right? They run the backups, they check them every morning. They, we call clients proactively when something happens. Um, I'll never forget in the beginning of COVID, people started traveling a lot. And so we saw um, one organization, their um, clinical psychologist, and uh, we noticed that the, the backups hadn't happened for a while. So one of our team members called her up and said, oh, I'm working for a beach house in Delaware. I got a new computer. Oh, well, you kind of got to let us know that. So, you know, we can we can get you set up a, for, for your new equipment. So, you know, that's an example of the level of like personalized service that when you have a good a good system, uh, someone's watching for you. Think about it like an um, outsourced um, IT department dedicated just to managing your backups. Whereas you can swipe your credit card on a website and, and get access to some software, but there's nobody who's monitoring that for you. Trust me, the call center in the Philippines is not paying attention to your backups and going to give you a call when something's, in, you know, something that they, they spot is unusual. Yeah, oh, that's great. You know, this reminds me of, it's almost like being in the medical field. Someone's monitoring, right? Where, where your heart rate is at a regular basis. There's doctors behind the scenes doing it. If you're someone who has, you know, had the device implanted or you have the monitor on and then they're watching it in real time calling you. I mean, this is really like first level service. What we're talking about here is someone is out there watching out for you, calling you when it's happening so that they can work with you immediately to I'm sure catch this a lot sooner and prevent a major issue than, you know, when they start to notice it, which, you know, for those of us who are unsophisticated handling data or cybersecurity issues, that could be well down the road, I'd yeah, imagine. No, absolutely. And I'll tell you a quick story. Um, one of the things that, that people tell me often is that, well, I don't need backups from a third party. Like my team's already got that covered. We pay this vendor to manage all of our IT and, and backups are included as a part of it. And while that may be true, um, a couple of years ago, there was a, an MSP, a managed service provider, one of these outsourced IT departments. They have about 200 or so um, clients in the South Florida area, including sports teams that you know you and I would have watched on TV. Um, so they, they serve big clients. Um, the MSP was hit with a ransomware attack. And unfortunately, all of the clients who uh, that, man, that MSP served and had access to their systems, right, they all got infected too. And there was about a dozen or so of those companies that we happened to share in common. So, you know, way earlier on, we had, they'd been with us for 10, 15 years. Um, they called us up right away and they said, look, this is the situation. Our MSP can barely return phone calls. You know, their, their folks were working around the clock and no knock against them. I mean, they were literally pulling people off of like the billing desk to answer, you know, level one help desk calls and, and try to troubleshoot what was going on. But they said, it's been you know, several hours, no one's getting back to me. Can you just restore my backups from your copy? Because I can't wait for them. And so we did. Um, and lo and behold, all of those local backups that were managed by that MSP were completely trashed. Um, and it was just because you have, you know, one of the things you learn when you're in the resiliency business is you don't want a lot of things that look the same, <laughs> right? Too much commonality puts you at risk. It's concentration risk. So you had the same people who were managing the production you know, servers and, and machines that were also managing the backups, same accounts, same passwords, right? Same personnel. And so when they were compromised, everything they touched was essentially poisoned. Whereas our team, it was a different team, different accounts, different platform. We don't actually run our and save our backups on, on Windows. We, we use Linux um, for added variety. We store them on a different network. We store them offsite. So we had all these different factors where 
we've at this point, you know, in that situation, but also ever since I bought the business, we have a 100% ransomware recovery rate. Um, and we actually tested that just, I want to say two, three weeks ago, um, where a regional healthcare provider client of ours, same thing, they got ransomware, their internal backups were hosed, ours were not. So you got to ask yourself the question, right? If, if my data is really, really important, how many layers of protection am I willing to put in place to ensure that when that worst day happens, I have a means to recover. I have experts who I can call upon who will roll up their sleeves and get into my systems and actually do it for me or do it with me. Um, that's really the value of, of having e-silo backups. So you must have to segregate data from specific industries uh, from everything else. So for example, medical data has to be, everybody has to have their own, I don't know if they have their own separate server or whatever, but everybody has to have their own separate little area where you can't, because that that can never be compromised like that if that gets out there's a there's a huge issue with that i mean there's an issue with all data getting out but like medical data especially or you know client specific data for a law firm i have a client who got hit with a ransomware attack and the entire firm was rendered helpless for a week because they didn't have access to their information and they were very tight-lipped about it because they didn't want the word getting out that they had gotten hit with a ransomware attack. And I have to believe they didn't have an effective backup system like you're talking about. Otherwise, it wouldn't have been a big, it wouldn't have been as big a deal. But how do you how do you segregate that data and how is it tested for compliance purposes? Like how is your how is your backup data tested for like HIPAA compliance or for you know compliance with FINRA's rules for financial data? Yeah, that sort so of thing. We treat all of our clients as if whatever information that they're backing up with us is the most important thing in the world. So we apply the same level of protection, the same high bar to everyone and everything. Because to be honest, by the time the data comes to us, we don't actually know what it is. We can't see it. You know, even our staff can't unencrypt and view our clients' data. And we do that on purpose, right? We have no reason to need to see any of the information that you back up and, and, and trust with us. So we have separate encryption keys for each of our customers which means that even if we would have some kind of a widespread breach, that you couldn't get to all the data of our individual clients, only they have those keys. So, you know, that's one of the, the protection measures that we have. The other thing is, is what I'll say is it's logical separation. So even though the data might be physically stored on the same physical server as part of our private cloud, because of the way, way that we store it and how we store it, it is logically separated. And so there's no crossover access. There's no ability to see, you know, from, from your backups, you know, Nicola, could you see Dave's data on the other side? Um, and so the, the encryption piece, though, is, is incredibly um, key to that. Um, the other thing I would say is that, you know, when you are in the business of data protection, you design, we call it security by design. So everything from the ground up is designed to ensure that things are segmented, that there's zero trust, that there isn't um, the ability for, um, if somebody were to get into our environment, to be able to move between servers. So that's ultimately how I'm able to sleep at night because I know that we've put in place the, those correct protections. To be honest with you, the, the weakest link in the entire chain, and this is often where it happens, is people and my clients have to have access, you know, username, password that gets them into their own backups. And that is what I worry about most because they use the same password for that as they use for, you know, other things. So a lot of what we do is education um, with our clients on here are good cyber hygiene practices 
that you should be applying in every area of your life, not just as it pertains to data that you, you know, protect with us, um, but you should be turning on multi-factor authentication. If you don't know what that is, message me and, and I'll help you get it set up. Um, that is the single best thing that you can be doing um, to protect your accounts, whether that's your bank account, your Amazon account, your backup account, all of it. Um, and that just ensures that when you log into something, you're using multiple ways to authenticate yourself to that system. It's a combination of something you have, which is a password, and something you know, which is often like a six-digit code that gets sent to you on your phone. Um, and there's there's even layers of security within that. There's good MFA practices and, and not so good ones. Um, so that's where we do a lot of just education on here are the things that you need to do to play your part in securing your own data. So let me ask a question that I'd imagine there's a lot of people sitting in our audience right now that are thinking, I have a million passwords, Kathy. Where is the best place to store those because I'm sick of saving and worrying about every password that I have to every different account? I was going to say, so So before I <laughs> tell you, don't write them you down. tell me where you're storing yours. <laughs> oh, Dave. <laughs> Nicola, what do you do? What do I do? I have, well, I have a password protected file that have passwords in them. <laughs> so you have an Excel spreadsheet that has a password and it's, it's the password spreadsheet and the password is password one, two, three. Okay, no password whatsoever. Mine is not a complicated one. All of them are unique and they're complicated. They're long. They're, there's nothing that's uniquely identifiable. Yeah. I use, so I use, I use LastPass and I, I used an assigned, like, like I, I used a randomized password to get me into LastPass. And so every time I forget the damn thing, it takes me an hour to get all my passwords, but it's, I think it's safe. I mean, I think they had a breach at one point, but I, I mean, I, but it's, I think that's the best I can do, right? Yeah. So a password manager or password vault, like a LastPass, but maybe a different one, um, would, would be the, the easiest thing to do. So I love what Nicola said about, you know, having totally unique, totally randomized passwords, hopefully really long ones. Cause there's, you can Google, um, time it takes to crack a password and you get these really scary charts that'll show you that even if it has eight characters and it has a combination of upper and lowercase and numbers and symbols and all that, it takes like 0.3 seconds for somebody to breach it with the right hardware. Um, so you really need a, a long, strong, com complex password, but then you store it in a vault, like one password is a good one, or there's, there's a whole bunch of them out there. If you're on LastPass, I would recommend moving away from it because of the breach that, that happened. Um, interestingly enough, in the breach, they the attacker stole a backup copy of the databases. So that's why you know I, I advise people against it um, or to move on to something else. But that that's really the best that you can do. Um, but I would say if you have a password vault, you've got unique passwords, and you've turned on MFA in every system that supports it, then you've at least covered off the basics of the things that you should be doing to to secure your accounts. Kathy, explain to people, I when I travel, I use a VPN. Explain to people the value of using a VPN and why people need to use a VPN. Yeah, uh, VPN stands for Virtual Private Network. And it creates a secure tunnel between your computer and the websites that you're communicating with. And why that matters is if you travel often and you're in uh, airports, hotels, Starbucks, right? You're on public Wi-Fi. 
if that Wi-Fi is not properly protected, any other individual who's on that same network can potentially be spying on your communications or even intercepting and changing the communications that are occurring between your computer and your bank's website or you know whatever, whatever it is that you're doing. Um, a VPN helps to eliminate that by creating that secure tunnel. Um, the other thing that's nice for, for folks who travel a lot, especially if it's out of country, is um, they'll use a VPN to be able to watch, you know, American shows in countries where that stuff is blocked. But from my point of view, that's that's a nice to have. It's the security value that that I think is really important for anyone who's on the road. If you've ever if you've ever been like on an airplane and you go to uh, you open like your Bluetooth or you click on the Wi-Fi and you see Joe's iPhone pop up as a sh as an option, that's why you need a VPN. Because if Joe's iPhone is popping up, you can be damn sure your computer is going to pop up there too. So it's, oh man, that is like, for me, that is the scariest, the absolute scariest thing. Especially people who have access to confidential client information and they're, you know, sitting in the airline club doing their work on that confidential client information, using the airline club Wi-Fi without any type of protection whatsoever. It scares me. All right, Kathy, before we let you go, let's talk a little bit about um, how you how you get clients, right? So how does eSilo find companies to work with? 99% of our clients come through referrals. So we work with trusted advisors, whether that's attorneys or accountants, um, also their IT provider. So, you know, you think most small to mid-sized organizations do some level of outsourcing to another IT provider. And those are often the ones that bring us in because they know that what we offer in terms of expertise and services is gonna be a little different than what they do day to day. Um, so that, that's always been our best source of clients. Kathy, what's the most frequently uh, asked question that leads to clients doing business with you? Yeah, I think probably the most common place that they're at when they come to us is if I had a security incident tomorrow, I don't know how I would do. And it's that fear of the unknown and the recognition that whatever I'm doing, it's probably not enough, is really what motivates them to, to reach out and call us. Um, I want to touch on one more thing, and then I'll turn it over to Nicola. And that last thing is your business as an entrepreneur is a really good business model because when you onboard a client, I would guess, and you can tell me if I'm wrong, probably upwards of 90% of your clients are recurring revenue clients in that you bring them on and then they're going to pay you for a service monthly or annually over and over and over again. Um, did that factor into the type of business that you were looking to buy? Uh, and if it didn't explain, you know, or even if it did explain the benefits of having a recurring revenue model in your business. Yeah. So having recurring revenue was an absolute core criteria. It was part of my top three criteria when I was shopping for, for businesses. And what I loved about this business model was that you build the technology once. I call it build once, sell many. Um, just like people with with uh, cloud websites, right? It's same sort of thing. You build it once and every improvement, every enhancement can be shared by all of your clients. So that was the big appeal for me. Um, it's actually why the consulting side of the business, I, it was a little bit surprising because we do strive to make that a recurring relationship, but a lot of it you know, sometimes is uh, one time and that wasn't necessarily our focus in the very, very beginning. Um, but what I would tell you is that in this space, if you treat your clients well and you do good work, they will stay with you forever. 
Um, we've got customers that have been with us for 15, 16, 17 years. When I bought the business, I did that was the last time I did the analytics on it. But at the time, our average retention was like nine and a half years, and it's only increased since then. Um, so I think that's huge. Um, that's part of what enables us to do what we do is we've got a core base, a core service that we can offer them, and everything else is kind of value on top. Um, so that's that's really one of the things that I love the most about this. What do you think, Kathy? I mean, what, what's, what's your vision for the company for the next few years? Where do you see the company? And I'll, and I'll use the benchmark for you. Where do you see the company in five years? That's a hard question. Um, where do I see it in five years? So um, I would like to say that we're 50-50, um, the cybersecurity consulting side and backups. As much as I love the backup side of the business, it is harder and harder to sell standalone backups as a service. There are so many other service providers that you know bundle that with other things. Um, so I would say it, we would be 50-50 on that mix and we would play an even bigger role in terms of disaster recovery and business continuity planning. And what I mean by that is a lot of small businesses don't put a lot of thought into those business continuity plans but mid-sized organizations absolutely do. And they understand that it's an orchestration of not just technology, but also their whole operations and you know, people process, um, as well as tools. And so I think we are uniquely positioned to help them build business resiliency, business continuity plans that take into account both the technology component, but also the cyber side. Um, so things that um, intersect across those different areas, you know, that's where I would love to be in twice the size of where we are right now in, in those couple of years. Kathy, when you're thinking about, and I know you've thought about this because I know you, when you're thinking about how this ends, right, what would an exit look like? Would an exit look like eSilo being acquired by one of the bigger players or would an exit look like you, you know, merging with another local technology provider that's complementary to you, where you just, you know, you remain an investor, but you step out of the day to day? What's your vision for an exit from eSilo? It'd be a strategic acquisition by another, and I'm going to use local in quotes because it doesn't have to be in South Florida. Um, but most likely another service provider where what we do and what they do is very yin and yang, very complementary. Um, I don't foresee us being acquired by a big player in the industry. We're not that tools focused where I think we would be an attractive acquisition candidate in that regard. Um, but definitely on the services side, I think that's where we would have our play. And do you, do you envision yourself as kind of a serial entrepreneur, maybe investing in something else? Or, I mean, you could do that as the CEO of eSilo and invest in something else. I mean, is that, is that something you see yourself doing or are you just sticking to the knitting and focusing on eSilo? I would say I'm a very, um, what's here and now, you know, what's right in front of me person. I give it all my full attention. Um, when I bought the business, I remember someone asked me, well, what's your exit strategy? I said, I don't get married to plan my divorce. I, you know, I get married for life and this is what I'm going to do until I'm unhappy. And then I'll start thinking about options if I ever get unhappy. Um, but I would say that a dream of mine. So my husband is also in the cybersecurity space. Um, and he's pretty active in, in the scene here in South Florida. He's actually on Governor DeSantis's cybersecurity committee. And he has all of these amazing ideas. Like he's a big ideas guy. And I would love for us to be able to go into business together where, you know, he's executing on the vision and I'm kind of standing behind him and, and making sure the trains run on time. 
Um, so I would love to do something like that, but I'm not sure that I'm ready to like have both of us take the leap into entrepreneurship. It's nice that he's still on the corporate track and I'm able to have the freedom to do this. So we'll have to see. Yeah, there it is. We, complimentary we to, partnerships. Complimentary <laughs> partnerships. We need to have a conversation about that because let me tell you, oh boy, the, the way you have it set up now, Kathy, is probably ideal. You both can understand each other, but your, your worlds are completely separate, which yeah. is fantastic. <laughs> exactly. All right, Nicola, what, what, do you, what have you got for Kathy before we let her go? You know, I, I, what I want to do is kind of bring this full circle. So we, we've spent a good deal of time getting to know you, really digging into some of the technical aspects of cybersecurity for our audience. And we've buried the lead a little bit. We want to have you come back as a recurring guest for a segment with Cyber Kathy. And so I just wanted to hear your your thoughts on that. You know, what what might be, and you could just give a short preview in store for some of the things we can discuss with and bring to the entrepreneurs who are listening to the podcast. Uh, well, I would absolutely love that. Um, I have so much that I always want to share with other business leaders. Um, there's a lot of myths, I think, that people believe about cybersecurity, either how easy or how hard it is. Um, and so I'd love to dispel a lot of those myths. I do a ton of different trainings for business leaders on those exact topics. So I think that's a, a great opportunity. And then the buzzword right now is generative AI and everybody's thinking about how to apply it in their businesses. And not that I ever want to be a naysayer because, you know, a cybersecurity and kind of risk management people can, can get a reputation for being the poo-pooers of things. But um, I think being smart about how you use tools like that and where your data goes and how to still take advantage of those tools, but in a, in a safe way, I think would be a really important topic for us to dig into on in a future episode. Oh, that's great. I love that. I think that's, uh, I think that's a fantastic idea. Um, all right. So Cyber Kathy Myron, thank you for joining us. I want everybody, we're going to put down in the show notes, I want you to subscribe to Kathy's YouTube channel. Uh, I see her shorts pop up all the time and her shorts are outstanding. You're, you're doing a great job with uh, with the information that you're sharing with folks on YouTube. And I will tell you that every time I watch one of those, I'm like, oh man, there's another thing I didn't know. Which is, <laughs> that I gotta so go that, do. <laughs> Thank you for watching and for listening to us today. It's been such a pleasure having you, Kathy Myron, join us today on the show. Um, we've learned so much and yet there's so much more in store for those of you who are following our podcast. So if you enjoyed today's episode, please watch another one. Uh, this is the Inside BS Show. I'm Nikki G. And you are? Um, I don't even remember. Okay. Dave Lorenzo, the godfather of growth. We'll, so see, we'll you tomorrow, see you tomorrow, folks. <laughs>